Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The big game is back, and you know what that means. We get to bet on what color Gatorade will dunk the winning coach. Now, each of the last two years, the Bucks and the Rams have gone for blue. Three of the last four years, blue has been the winning color, and yet blue comes in as the second largest favorite this year at plus 390. At plus 200, you can get orange. At plus 400, you can get clear or watercolor. Yellow, green, slash lemon, lime, also at plus 400. Red is sitting at plus 600, and purple comes in at plus 1,000. All of your big game bets are available at Bet Online Sportsbook, and you can use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Using the link in the description to this episode, Bet Online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take. It Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody. It is a fantabulous February 8th according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening. It's Super Bowl week. The thing I've learned over the last three years of doing this podcast is that Super Bowl week only gets interesting on Thursday and Friday. It's also only interesting when you're actually at the Super Bowl, and we are not at the Super Bowl. So we're going to spend Thursday and Friday talking about the Super Bowl. We're also waiting for the NBA trade deadline on Thursday, and uh, unless you want to hear me talk about Kessler Edwards getting traded to the Sacramento Kings, there's not any big NBA news to talk about. And so this is the perfect place to weave in the podcast that I've been wanting to do for the past three days. We are going to talk about Brianna Stewart and WNBA working class labor fights. I always like to imagine this podcast as a Venn diagram, which is things I'm interested in, things that the audience is interested in, and where those points overlap. And when we talk about labor battles in sports, you guys actually seem to really enjoy talking about labor battles. And I think there is no more interesting labor fight going on in the sport than with the WNBA right now. Why? Because the WNBA is in the middle of their free agency. And we love the transaction in basketball. It's what's driving the entire news cycle as people obsess over Kessler Edwards getting traded from the Brooklyn Nets to the Sacramento Kings. Maybe that's just because I live in Sacramento and I work at a sports radio station. So hearing six consecutive hours of talk about Kessler Edwards seems to be moving the needle today. 
It's not like it's a super, super surprise when we get excited about the transaction. And there has been no more interesting transaction in the WNBA than Brianna Stewart going from the Seattle Storm to the New York Liberty. And Brianna Stewart's move from Seattle to New York is a perfect underlying case to talk about the entire working class labor fight in the WNBA. And you know from hearing me talk on past podcasts, I am a huge pro-labor person. I am always going to side with labor in almost every circumstance, regardless of rationality, because more often than not, labor is fighting on the right side of history in an oppressive capitalistic system that has over the past 40 years, thrown the working class of America overboard and stopped giving a shit about them. And now they're throwing over the management class of America in exchange for people in the top 0.1%. And if you want to extend down to the top 0.7%, controlling nearly 30% of the wealth, or you can dive down further to talking about the top 10%, controlling over 90% of wealth, Uh, I believe that's in America or globally. I'd have to double check my stats on that one. Point being, working class has kind of been thrown overboard 40 years ago in the American capitalistic system. And so it's really important to fight for the rights of labor. And in this weird construct of sports that reflects society, there are interesting labor battles happening all over the place. We talk about it in the NFL. We talk about it in the NBA. Major League Baseball had a lockout last year, which provided an awesome opportunity to talk about labor fights. And the WNBA has a really, really interesting real-time labor battle going on right now. And part of why I find it so interesting, I've got degrees in economics and history. And labor fights, especially labor fights in women's sports, are a perfect confluence of economics and history, two things that really pique my interest. So, the first thing we gotta do to talk about this story is talk about Brianna Stewart specifically. Work in the smallest detail and the basketball-related detail, and then work our way out to the macro. We're gonna start with the small, and then work our way out to the bigger picture. The first part to understand is who Brianna Stewart is, because for those who don't watch WNBA super intently, and I don't watch WNBA the way that I watch other sports, it's one of those sports on the periphery for me where I know the sport, I can name you the players, I'm not watching a lot of sports, because I'm not watching a whole lot of NBA basketball right now, I'm not watching a whole lot of Major League Baseball in the regular season, I'm barely even watching bad football. So I understand the WNBA on the periphery, but if you want to know about who Brianna Stewart is, she is the most talented basketball prospect potentially ever in the history of women's sports. When Brianna Stewart was playing at the University of Connecticut with Gino Ariema back in the mid-2010s, she won a national championship every single year. For four years. Because remember, there is no one-and-done, two-year, three-year system the same way in the WNBA as there is in the NBA. The WNBA only has approximately 150 roster spots, and you have women who play on WNBA teams get drafted in the first round and get cut before they ever make their first training camp. The rosters are so thin on the WNBA that your best opportunity to play women's prof- or women's basketball 
is the collegiate ranks for a, the development of women's college basketball began before the development of women's professional basketball. And this still maintains the same place where the, there's not a financial incentive to go to the league and there's more exposure and popularity in women's college basketball. Thus, WNBA players spend four years in college. Brianna Stewart got into college as the number one recruit in the country. And Brianna Stewart in all four years at UConn, won a national championship. And look, UConn won tons of national championships. They never won four in a row, except for with Brianna Stewart. And in all four of those championship seasons, Brianna Stewart was the NCAA tournament's MVP. They call it the most outstanding player. She won most outstanding player all four years. So she was the national champion all four years in college and was the best player on UConn for all four seasons. She won college player of the year three different times. She won conference player of the year three times. She was the high school national player of the year her senior year in high school. She is the biggest basketball prospect that has ever existed. And when she got to the the WNBA, she was drafted number one overall by the Seattle Storm. There's not really a tanking system that exists in the same way in women's collegiate basketball, just or sorry, women's professional basketball, only because there aren't enough teams to where you can tank for years at a time. Although the system still exists, but like the Seattle Storm were really good before Brianna Stewart got there. They just happened to be bad for one season, which then got them uh, into a position where they were bad for two seasons and then they happened to get the top pick in the draft and select Brianna Stewart. And then the next season, they were immediately back in the playoffs. And so the WNBA, because they have an expanded playoff field now and Brianna Stewart playing with Sue Bird, who is also a member of the Seattle Storm, the Seattle Storm, it took them a couple years to figure it out. And by Brianna Stewart's third season in 2018, won the championship. And they didn't just win the championship, they swept in the WNBA Finals against Washington. Won the championship in 2018 with a 26-8 record, which is the best year since the last time they won the WNBA championship in 2010, and then followed that up in the pandemic-shortened 2020 season and going to the the WNBA bubble, nicknamed the Wubble, um, and put up their best season since 2010 by going 18-4, and winning the championship against Las Vegas and going undefeated in the playoffs. There were two rounds of playoffs that year. This is before they expanded playoffs in the WNBA. Two rounds of playoffs. They went 6-0 and in those playoff rounds. And they won the WNBA championship in the bubble. So Brianna Stewart comes in to the Seattle Storm. They win two championships with Sue Bird still playing on the team. Sue Bird retires. And at the end of... Her first contract, Brianna Stewart ends up signing a one-year Supermax contract to remain on the Seattle Storm for 2022. They make it to the uh, basically conference finals, but there's no conferences, so call it the Final Four in the WNBA, or they call it the semifinals. One round before the championship, they lose to Las Vegas, who ends up winning the championship 
in 2022, that one-year Supermax deal is completed, and Brianna Stewart is able to go and enter free agency for the first time in her career, or, you know, what would be classified as unrestricted free agency. And then Brianna Stewart gets to free agency, and the way that she goes about it is by not just being someone who's very cryptic about where she's going to go, but is also very adamant of like, hey, my free agency is generating this sort of attraction and interest from the broader public. Let's talk about how WNBA players need these sorts of benefits that are currently being denied by the league, despite the fact that they aren't expressly prohibited in their collective bargaining agreement. And we'll talk more about that coming up a little bit later. But she is generating interest in her free agency, and with that free agency, she is talking about the labor fight for the WNBA, which is bringing attention to an audience that is probably on the periphery of the league, Someone probably similar to me who can name players on every team and also isn't watching the games as intently as one might the NBA or might one of the sports that, you know, is a casual fan of the sport is learning more about what labor battles in the WNBA look like. And then after about a week long free agency where she also posts all of her cryptic tweets in emojis, which I thought was really clever. Because like, if if someone did that in the NBA where they were just posting emojis as their way to talk about their free agency, God, we would have so much fun with that. We would have so much fun with cryptic Kyrie tweets and cryptic LeBron tweets. We would have so much fun if they only did it in emojis. Like when DeMarcus Cousins did Snake in the Grass after the Kings drafted a center with the 13th pick, I think it was like Giorgos Papayanis, and he tweeted out snake grass emojis and left uh, everyone to kind of infer what he was talking about, which was clearly about his displeasure with Sacramento picking a center. God, it would be so much fun if just they did what Brianna Stewart did, which was four emojis talking about the four teams that she was considering signing with, which I think was like, a, a rain cloud for a storm and the Statue of Liberty for New York. It was great. And then ultimately, Brianna Stewart ended up signing with the New York Liberty and Sabrina Unescu and Jewel Lloyd. And, a, you know, they called it a super team in the aftermath of it. And uh, she joked on NBA Today with Malika Andrews that, like, oh, super teams are all the rage now. And so. Brianna Stewart signs with the New York Liberty, which is a really interesting point because she gets a max contract. She gets to go to the New York Liberty in her free agency period. The max contract that she signed is for $196,000. That's that's the max for a free agent in the WNBA who have the same max contract system as the NBA. It's the NBA and the WNBA are the only sports that really limit the top-end earners. Brianna Stewart making $196,000 against the $1.34 million salary cap in the WNBA is roughly about the equivalent of what the NBA's max contract is. The NBA's max is hanging around $38 million. The salary cap hangs around $180. Roughly the same percentages exist on the max contract. The difference for the WNBA is the salary cap structure as compared to the NBA. Because from a glance, one might infer that 
the WNBA having a $1.34 million salary cap compared to the NBA's being 130 times more, I'm just ballparking it roughly, would be based on league-related revenues. And that is not true within the context of how much of a percentage they're making. NBA players in their collective bargaining agreement make 50% of league-related revenues. So the in their collective bargaining agreement between the NBA governors and the NBA players, they negotiate a 50-50 revenue split. 50% of NBA revenues go to the owners, or the governors as they're called in the NBA. 50% go to the players. In the WNBA's collective bargaining agreement, 80% of revenue goes to the governors, 20% goes to the players. And that comes from a place of leverage in negotiations. Because the WNBA is such a new sport, it doesn't have the same level of negotiating power against management. And that's where this becomes a classic management versus labor battle. And when we talk about labor versus management within the WNBA, it's important to compare the modern WNBA to the 1980s NBA. Because the NBA did not have a revenue-sharing model until 1980, which was 34 years after the league was created. And it was a year before the NBA's first giant television contract with CBS that would lead to the explosion of league-related revenue, basketball-related revenue, and was the whole reason for the 1976 ABA-NBA merger, was because the entire purpose of merging the two leagues was so that they could negotiate a long-term television deal with CBS. And in order to negotiate that television deal, they needed to have a collective bargaining agreement in place. And this is a model that still exists in every sport. NFL negotiates a collective bargaining agreement in 2020. In 2021, they sign a new TV contract with their partners. NBA gets a new collective bargaining agreement in 2011. In 2014, they sign a long-term deal with their TV partners. NBA gets a collective bargaining agreement settled right now. They're talking about the extension for uh, negotiating. Just got extended the other day to March 31st, 2023 for an early negotiating period. They're going to negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement by 2024, and then come 2026, there's going to be a brand new television contract for ESPN and Turner to potentially negotiate with the NBA. And the WNBA followed the same model. In 2020, they negotiated their collective bargaining agreement the first time ever that they had revenue sharing in the collective bargaining agreement and then signed a long-term extension with ESPN and NBA TV as their broadcast partners. And so the WNBA is comparable to 1980s NBA because the WNBA has only existed for 27 years. And the reason that there is this gap is because women's sports were expressly illegal until the 1970s. Like, if you know the story of Britain, Britain had women's soccer as an incredibly popular sport in the 1930s and 40s, and because they risked the possibility of the men's sports leagues being engulfed by women's soccer, they made women's soccer illegal 
in the country for 25 years. The United States followed a similar model of creating laws that made it difficult for women's sports leagues to form in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Only in the 1970s were those laws taken back as part of uh, civil rights reforms of the 60s and 70s, and then it took another 25 years for a generation of women to organize and then be able to create a, a sustainable league. In women's soccer, they've tried and failed three different times in order to form a league. In the WNBA, it took the financial support of the NBA in the 1990s to get the league off on its footing. And 30 years later, you're starting to see an actual league that has grounding and is able to generate revenue. In 2021, the WNBA generated $60 million in revenue. Approximately $12 million of that went to the players, which is how you get the $1.34 million salary cap number. 1.34 multiplied by the 12 teams in the league, it comes out to roughly about, that would be $15 million ballparking it, adjusting a little bit. Uh, Ballpark, 15 to $16 million, that's 20% of league-related revenue. That means in 2023, which is two years after the $60 million number, in 2023, the WNBA generated approximately $75 to $80 million in league-related revenue. Because only 20% of it goes to the players, you divide it by the 12 teams, you find a salary cap of $1.34 million, and negotiated within that are similar structures that make it so Brianna Stewart can only make a reported $196,000, because if they had the same collective bargaining terms as the NBA, which... In, in all actuality, the NBA's used to be higher than 50-50. It used to be 57-58%. But say 50-50 is the, the negotiating standpoint there. You're looking at Brianna Stewart's max... Or you're looking at the salary cap in the WNBA going up to about $4 million to $5 million. And you're seeing Brianna Stewart's contract go from $196,000 to a max contract of approximately, if you increase to 2.5, $500,000 ballpark, depending on, it would be between $490,000 and $500,000, which the difference between making $200,000 a year and $500,000 a year is life-changing amounts of money. That's going from being in the lower middle, or I'm sorry, the middle class of the United States to being in a slightly upper middle class of the United States. That is life-changing amounts of money that we're talking about from your primary source of income. And we can get into WNBA players going overseas to make money in other um, podcasts. It's not as important to the story that we're talking about here. In league-related revenue, you're seeing Brianna Stewart potentially make a 250% increase based on the collective bargaining terms of their deal. Kelsey Plum went on that podcast and talked about what equal pay looked like for the WNBA and talked about how her jersey sales don't make her any money. Uh, Sabrina Unescu's talked about something similar where her jersey sales don't make money for the league because that's how their collective bargaining agreement is structured. And look, their negotiation collective bargaining agreements are based on how much leverage you have 
and WNBA players didn't have a strength of positioning in their negotiations. They got an eight-year collective bargaining agreement in 2020. They're about to go into year four of the collective bargaining agreement, and so there's nothing they can do at this point when it comes to changing the terms of the collective bargaining agreement and how much money is made by players at the top end or at the minimums when we're talking about the approximately 150 roster spots that come from the WNBA. Revenues are going up in the sport. Like I said, $60 million in 2021 compared to roughly 75 to $80 million two years later in 2023. Revenues are going up in the WNBA. Therefore, everyone is getting more money. The difference is the players are getting less of a fair share at every stage of the negotiation and every stage of the income bracket, whether it's Brianna Stewart or whether it's the 12th person on the bench for the New York Liberty, everyone is getting less than what they should based on any structure of collective bargaining. I mean, Dana White and the UFC don't have a collective bargaining negotiation and their fighters make reportedly between 7 to 10% of UFC-related revenues. So... The difference between no union and a strong union like the NBA or Major League Baseball and having a 50-50 revenue split with additional perks included outside of league-related revenues, such as healthcare for players, as one example, you're seeing the WNBA be somewhere in the in-between and, quite frankly, leaning more towards the we-don't-have-a-union-at-all just because the sport is so new and that union has not been around long enough to negotiate from a place of strength in determining their collective bargaining agreement. And also the people in management of the WNBA recognized this and got a good deal on their collective bargaining ag agreement in 2020. So this brings us to the bigger, more... So that's the, the individual level as it relates to Brianna Stewart and salary cap and collective bargaining. Now we can bring the labor fight out beyond collective bargaining to costs of doing business. And one of the big conversations about costs of doing business in the WNBA over the last two seasons has been about team owners and team governors, because again, governor, owner, interchangeable, team governors spending money on things such as private flights, hotels with security, basic costs of doing business in all of major professional sports. Back in 2022, the New York Liberty got fined $500,000 from the, from the sport for paying for private flights for each of their team for their team to fly I can't remember which city it was I believe it was from Connecticut to somewhere across the country they got fined money because they it is expressly prohibited that you are allowed to pay for private flights under the guise of competitive balance in the sport why is that the case because the WNBA ownership groups or WNBA governor groups have a weird disparity between those with lots of money and those with significantly less money. According to Arizona Central, the, uh, yeah, the, they typically cost about 10 to $15 million 
to buy a WNBA team. Now, the difference is WNBA sales aren't necessarily made public. Uh, Mark Davis bought the Las Vegas Aces and didn't list how much the team cost. MGM owned the team previously and then sold them to Mark Davis. They didn't list how much the team cost in their uh, financial statements, and because it's a publicly traded company, they have to list their financials. So, you know, it's reported to be between like 10 to $15 million to buy a WNBA team, and it might be a little bit less as time goes on, which again, you need a lot of money to buy a WNBA team, but you don't need as much. It's not as exclusive to buying in as an NBA team is. So some people without a lot of money can purchase, relatively speaking, can purchase a professional basketball team. The Atlanta Dream were previously owned by Kelly Loeffler, who was that racist senator who was going up against Raphael Warnock in 2020, and the WNBA put out like, hey, you should not be a part of this league. We don't want you here. And the team sold to a group um, with uh, a leader who was part of an investment group in Atlanta and a chief, uh, someone who was a chief operating officer with um, the the same group with basically it was bought by an investment group and Renee Montgomery, who's a former WNBA player who has a bunch of business deals and does a podcast with the Levitard Show and is a broadcaster for NBA TV. Renee Montgomery and uh, an investment group in. Atlanta bought the team, presumably they don't have hundreds of millions of dollars. I could be wrong. Investing in Atlanta real estate could lead to being worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know the net worth of that group. Then the flip side of that is the owner of the Chicago Sky, he's worth $1.2 billion. Um, this this kind of works across the board where there's 12 WNBA teams. Many of them are worth hundreds uh, or the 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 people who own them are worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And then there's a handful where the ownership group only exists in the tens of millions instead of in the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. Uh, the Seattle Storm, which is a perfect example for this, the Seattle Storm are owned by a all, by a group of three women who bought the team uh, about 12 years ago. And... They, uh, one of them previously worked for Microsoft and, uh, basically this group of three women bought the Seattle storm and have had an incredibly successful run with the team. However, the team is worth about $15 million and their purchase price back in 2008 was roughly about $2 million. $2 million to own a professional sports team is a low threshold to hit given the purchase prices that we see for like the Phoenix Suns who sold for $4 billion and the Phoenix Mercury were like 10 to $15 million of that sale. And so what's interesting about this from the WNBA perspective is a team like the Seattle Storm with a valuation in the 10 to $15 million range purchased by an ownership group that doesn't have hundreds of millions, if not billions in capital, they did not retain Brianna Stewart, and Brianna Stewart signed with the New York Liberty, who are owned by Joe Sy. If you've heard the name Joe Sy recently, he's on the name of Tuesday's podcast that we did, because he's the guy who had, like, petty beef with Kyrie Irving, because he owns the Brooklyn Nets, and he is worth about $3 billion. Joe Sy was the guy 
who wanted to buy private flights for his WNBA team, which by the way, every NBA team flies private everywhere they go. He bought private flights for the WNBA team and then got fined the $50,000 because of the WNBA labor fight trying to fight for quote-unquote competitive balance in their travel. And the reason competitive balance exists in their travel is because of the three WNBA ownership groups, roughly about 25% of the league, that cannot afford to continue taking losses to pay for the costs of the WNBA team, such as flying private, feeding your players in-house, making improvements to your arena, things that cost money outside of the WNBA. And look, if you own an arena like the uh, the Connecticut Sun Ownership Group owns their $40 million arena so they can put a WNBA team and uh, you know Disney on ice and monster trucks and whatever else comes through the rotating circuit into your $40 million arena, when you own that space... You can make revenue on the arena itself. It's not just a WNBA arena. At the same time, a lot of these places don't own the arenas that they're in, and the WNBA ownership group is either not wealthy enough to build another arena, or they play in the NBA arena because another 25 to 50% of WNBA ownership groups happen to be the people who also own the local NBA team. Uh, like the Indiana Fever, they're owned by the guy who owns the Pacers. The Washington Mystics are owned by the team that owns uh, the Washington Wiz or owned by the guy who owns the Washington Wizards. The, the Phoenix Mercury just sold to the guy, you know, who, you know, the Mercury and Suns sold together. Joe Sy owns the Brooklyn Nets and the New York Liberty. Glenn Taylor owned the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Minnesota Lynx. Like, it's very normal for the person who owns the local NBA team to own the local WNBA team. And so, as a result, you have half the league being in stadiums that are that are owned by the ownership group, and the WNBA is not the main source of income. Therefore, they have less of a problem spending money. Why? Because they're worth billions of dollars. Private flights are not a gigantic cost when we're talking about the billions of dollars camp and you're making revenue in all sorts of other places around your basketball team. When you are an ownership group that only owns a WNBA team and is only worth in the tens of millions of dollars and are absorbing losses on your WNBA team potentially, it's more of a problem paying for private flights. It's still doable. You just don't want to do it because it adds to costs. And when you're trying to maximize revenue, or sorry, maximize profit, you take your revenue up or you lower your costs. And if revenue's not going up, you can't add more costs, theoretically, if your main objective is to turn a profit. Now, I'd argue if you're owning a WNBA team, your main objective should not be to make a profit. It should be to expand the league, uh, pay players more money, even at absorbing losses, because that will continue to grow the sport, bring in more fans, because you're investing more money into this product, Therefore, you're going to bring more fans into the arena, you're going to build a fan base that will continue to potentially spend money, and that will increase revenues in the long run. This is a model that is pretty consistent across 50 years, is that when you want to increase your 
consumer base who is going to repeatedly be spending money, you have to take losses on the front end with an entertainment product because you have to put an entertaining product on the floor if you want to bring new fans in. And ultimately, if you own a WNBA team, bringing in new fans should be the main objective of owning a team in that space. And you know who understands that, ironically, in this respect? Mark Davis. That Mark Davis who owns the, the Las Vegas Raiders and has a stupid haircut and has ran that team into the ground. Mark Davis understands that spending money on your team when the, the revenues are, or sorry, when the costs are low and the revenues are low and you have lots of excess resources, spending the money on that team is a better idea than just taking losses and trying to turn a profit because turning a profit should not be the main objective of the WNBA right now. It's a good idea to turn a profit. When you have excess resources and not enough revenue, putting in costs on the front end and absorbing losses will lead to increased revenues in the future because you're going to put a better product on the floor, which will bring more people in an entertainment economy and there's all sorts of economic theories about this, but the point being, the main objective should not be to turn a profit, and this is a point that was articulated well by Bomani Jones, who's a big labor guy, which is, if you can't afford to pay for private flights, you should probably sell to someone with more money. And again, this is about 25% of the WNBA ownership groups. We're talking about the uh, Seattle Storm, we're talking about the Connecticut Sun, we are talking about previously the um, M MGM was owning the Vegas team and they weren't spending tons of money in there, uh, and potentially we're talking about the Atlanta Dream. I don't know what the revenues are for the, the guy who owns Northland Investment Corp and has local Atlanta real estate, like I don't know what their revenues are, but there's about 25% that cannot are that are significantly less wealthy than the people who own the local team. And so what you're looking at in this respect is nine teams who are happy to spend that money and in order to but also you can protect your costs. Some some of the owners of the WNBA teams who can't afford to buy private flights are like, well I'm not really gonna be fighting hard for private flights just because it's an increased cost and uh, the most important thing is to maximize profits and so you know it's kind of nice that we don't have to spend money on private flights and then you have the flip side of it which is Joe Sai, who was publicly like yeah I believe that these players deserve to have private flights I believe they deserve the costs of being a professional athlete like are paid for in the NBA and they should have these same points because there is no good reason to not do so. And uh, the Los Angeles Sparks, which are owned by the same people who own the Dodgers, talk about this same point. And like I was talking about a second ago, Mark Davis, ironically, is the one who understands this point. Now, Mark Davis is not worth $5 billion. In fact, he's like kind of in the hundreds of millions category because of some losses on the Raiders. The point being, though, Mark Davis is spending a lot, relatively speaking, on the on the WNBA team. And they happen to have Asia Wilson, who is, if Brianna Stewart was a generational prospect uh, seven years ago, Asia Wilson was the next 
Brianna Stewart, and they won the WNBA title in 2022 for Las Vegas. And they were the team that signed Liz Cambridge, although we're not big fans of Liz Cambridge. And they just signed Candace Parker to a one-year contract to kind of be a mercenary. And you're seeing the super teams in the sport be New York and Las Vegas, who are likely headed for a crash course in this year's championship round of the WNBA. And you're seeing how the teams that don't spend the money on their WNBA teams or more like more to say are the ones who are preventing everyone else from spending how they so choose those teams are losing out on the players who are going like the classic case of Brianna Stewart going from the Seattle Storm to the New York Liberty is a classic case of what is about to become haves and have-nots in a labor battle of the WNBA that will ext- that will lead to a really interesting collective bargaining negotiation two years from now, and in the in-between is going to lead to all sorts of changes in the way the league is structured and changes in how uh, teams are going to spend outside of league-related revenue. And so this battle between spending money reluctance to spend money, collective bargaining restrictions put in place by the three to four ownership groups that don't have the hundreds of millions of dollars to take losses and increase costs, despite the fact that revenues are increasing, potentially not at the rate of those costs. But we're not talking about big costs in terms of private flights. Where this expands further is the type of hotels, the type of training facilities that these teams work at the types of places that they will play and where the where and specifically then we come to the collective bargaining negotiation so these costs outside of league related revenues are something that any team can spend you're free to spend as much money unless it's negotiated in collective bargaining we saw Joe Sy push up against this we've seen Mark Davis ironically push up against this and This has been a battle in the WNBA that's going to continue because it's the only thing that can change in the short term. If you can't change your collective bargaining agreement and the the management isn't willing to come to the table and negotiate revisions to the collective bargaining agreement, then what you have is a fight around things that are not in league-related revenue. And part of that fight comes down to WNBA players getting costs paid for outside of league-related revenue because even if it's, oh, it'll mess up the bottom line, you should be spending money on these people because these people are already getting a raw end of the deal on their salaries. They're getting a raw end of the deal on their uh, flights and team-related costs. They're not training in the same facilities. This becomes an equity problem because we're talking about women's sports compared to men's sports, things we've talked about all the time with the NCAA. And this is this is an equity problem where the WNBA got a... I mean, the, the men's sports got a 50-year head start on women's sports. And this becomes the, the biggest macro-level point of all of this because we've gone from Brianna Stewart to her free agency, to the WNBA collective bargaining agreement, to the financial constructs of the entire league and ownership groups, which make up the the league as a whole. Now we can expand this out further to other sports leagues, which is, it's really interesting to watch this happen in real time 
because this is the exact same shit the NBA was fighting for in the 1970s and 1980s. If you've heard stories about Oscar Robertson and his fight as head of the, the league's forming players union during the, nego- during the negotiations uh, for a merger, the reason the NBA wanted to merge is because their revenues would explode with a new television contract, and they did. It was beyond even the wildest expectations of people who were watching the NBA in the 70s and 80s. They never thought the NBA would be worth $100 billion and that the sport would generate $10 billion in revenue as they did in 2022. It was never believed that that could be a, a feasible, like it couldn't even be possible that that would happen, that the NBA as a league would be worth about, I said $100 billion, that's the NFL. The, the NBA is about $50 billion, and they generated $10 billion in league-related revenue because there's other revenue sources like owning your own buildings. That goes into the values of these franchises. The NBA teams that are worth $50 billion collectively got a 50-year head start on women's sports. Because women's sports were expressly illegal for 30 years. And then it took another 20 years, once you remove those laws, for a generation of women's basketball to actually form a league and have the popularity of the consumer public because it just didn't exist until the 1990s Olympics and 1990s college basketball. And by the time the WNBA was formed in the late 1990s, The NBA had revenues that were exceeding the hundreds of millions of dollars, and today that number is in the the billions and is now approaching the tens of billions in terms of league-related revenue. And so this is where this becomes an equity battle between men's and women's sports and where express law, like expressly written laws that made women organizing sports illegal— In the United States, until the 1970s, you're now fighting a 50-year head start with men's sports, and all of these, and, and what's really interesting is all of these stories about Oscar Robertson and labor fights of the 70s and 80s talked about in basketball, or just talking about how Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was ready, they sat out the Olympics out of protests over the civil rights movement. You're seeing all of that happen again in real time, whether it's talking whether it's the WNBA players organizing after the death of George Floyd whether it's having a more progressive stance on LGBTQ plus rights in the WNBA and just having being lesbian and being transgender being and being queer way more open in women's sports women's sports being way ahead of the curve on men's sports because of when men's sports got their money and when there was a pressure to conform in order to protect the dollars, which will eventually happen in the WNBA. Historical precedent says we're going to reach a place where the values of the WNBA are not as, uh, they're not able to form and manipulate just because it's pushing up against so much money that's pushing them in another direction. We're going to get to that point one day. 20, 30 years from now, what's interesting in the short term is you're seeing how the WNBA responds in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. You're, and the, 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 the WNBA bubble being incredibly progressive on that front. The WNBA turning an election in Georgia. If you've read stories about how them pushing back against Kelly Loeffler, who owned a WNBA team, pressuring the sale of that team, and then pushing hard to back Raphael Warnock in Georgia, a vote that ended up swinging the Senate in the aftermath of Joe Biden winning the 2020 election because that Senate race 
led to Senate control for Democrats, like swinging political power in America with their influence in Atlanta and the WNBA going, I mean, not just the Atlanta dream, everyone in the WNBA wearing those support Raphael Warnock shirts and getting Kelly Loeffler, the racist uh, senator who was trying to run against him, getting her out of her position as the incumbent, getting her to sell the WNBA team. Uh, Maya Moore's story and how WNBA players have fought social justice change and in many cases, given years of their career uh, to fight these causes. Maya Moore retired from basketball early to help get uh, a family friend who I believe they ended up getting engaged after the fact, getting them, getting him out of jail based on a wrongful conviction and getting that overturned and having it take years to overturn a wrongful conviction. Like stories about this are similar to the stories told about 1960s w, uh, NBA players and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Russell and Oscar Robertson and Muhammad Al- Like, those stories are happening in real time. And from a historical standpoint, it's really interesting to see that. Not just from the civil rights and the progressive social aspects of it, but from the economic aspects as well. From labor fights between the WNBA players and the WNBA management. Seeing how they are getting uh, deals that mirror the 1980s NBA where they're being exploited for their labor based on what fair, based on what the systems should exist and based on the revenue they should be generating based on what they bring to the sport itself. It's really interesting to see them make the equivalent of 33 cents on the dollar for what their labor is worth, even as revenues in the sport continue to grow every single year. It's so interesting to watch that happen in real time because it's basically like old stories from the 60s and 70s NBA and old stories from the 60s and 70s NFL existing now in this women's sports league. And then you bring all the gender inequity aspects into it and it makes for such an interesting story to watch in real time and a story that is easy to get behind. Getting behind the labor of the WNBA is a really easy, interesting stance to to take. I mean, for me, it's easy because I always stand behind labor, but standing behind it with all of these interesting aspects to it, whether it's the historical precedent of social change, economic change, trying to fight for a labor union within their sport, and just the historical precedent of getting to watch that in real time, I find to be incredibly, incredibly interesting. And it's going to be so interesting to watch this fight continue. And hopefully there will be ways to financially support these players so that they may have the opportunity to choose the money over having to, getting opportunity to choose the money over standing on social progress the way that LeBron James has recently, the way that Kevin Durant has recently. Like having that opportunity, having that privilege to st- to make enough money to put themselves in a position where not only are they not just making like high like low six figures but making high six figures into seven figures the way that all of these sports leagues have exploded and the way that labor should be getting compensated if they are the if their women's sport if the WNBA players are the primary cause for generating 75 to 80 million dollars in revenue per year you should be making a significant portion of that revenue if you are the labor of that sport. And so this is an incredibly interesting fight that's going to, you know, it mirrors where male sports were in the 1960s and 70s 
back when I would argue this was before it became more difficult because unions have been decimated in the United States over the last 40 years. In the 1970s, about 40% of people were part of a union. That number's down to like 12% today. Unions being decimated in America. Inequity and wealth being a, a massive problem in America that previously existed but now exists only as a more exacerbated case. As you see, labor continue to be exploited in ways under the capitalistic system that has just gone completely, uh, not necessarily out of control. It was out of control back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but seeing that happen in a way now that is, you know, we're talking about like LeBron uh, owning an NBA team being something unfathomable, whereas like owning a professional sports team when you are the primary mover of $500 million in revenue should not be <laughs> that crazy of an idea. And so it's really interesting to watch as these sports leagues expand and grow and their wealth uh, of these teams becomes a real estate battle in male professional sports, how women's professional sports are following the same path, and yet they exist in a world that are there are so many pressures pushing back against them, not just from the structures and systems of the capitalistic society America has decided to create that exploits labor at every turn. In addition, all of the gender inequity parts to this fight because women historically have had to continue to fight and fight and they need allies and support in order to get to do even make 75 cents on the dollar relative to male counterparts which is about where the the women the female inequity gap is currently right now in or wage gap or whatever you want to call it it's about 75 cents to the dollar now Think about all of the fights to just push back against the structures and systems of the male supremacy in the United States and add that into the mix. It's such an interesting, unique labor fight, hence why I wanted to spend an hour talking about it. And it's going to be really, really interesting to see how this evolves and changes over the next two years. And so shout out to all of the women in the WNBA who are trying to draw attention to this. I hope that you get the support and allyship that you deserve from, I mean, people who are fans of the sport, but also allyship from people with actual power like Joe Sy and like Mark Davis. I know it's weird to compliment those two people, but they're the two that are kind of on the front lines of this one publicly in doing the right thing. So shout out to y'all for doing the right thing on that respect. So hopefully you get the allyship of people who have actual power over the league. Because if you're owning a WNBA team and you have hundreds of millions of dollars and this is a side project, use your money to grow the sport pour resources into it and give these women and give the people in power of the WNBA the ability to grow that sport. Pour resources in, accept financial losses for years and years. It would be a whole lot better use of your money than the way that it's being spent or not spent right now in the WNBA. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We've got episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays occasionally, probably not this week, but coming off the Super Bowl, we'll have all sorts of fun content coming at you. Friends of the show are going to be joining us. Make sure to leave five-star reviews, downloads, all of that good stuff here on this wonderful show. And in the meantime, take it easy. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow.